0: These are the chronicles of the journey we take together.
1: The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us Through Through the the wind.
2: Wind Door.
0: Hello dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Window with your friends Greg and Toby. No my exci- brains are scrambled, it's too
1: damn hot, let's talk wind doors, tigers, etc. to help me take my mind off it.
0: I was about to say there was no exciting intro plan for this time, but apparently Toby has decided to ruin those non-plans. I'm here to ruin all of your plans, Greg. ho <laughs> ho! This is the ongoing struggle between me, the font of Through the Wind Door's order, versus Toby, the source of its chaos. Every time. (laughs) (sighs) It can be hard to know where to begin. Much of what we love about these upcoming chapters, specifically chapters 27 through 29, a lot of it is really just interaction between characters without a huge amount of depth or commentary on life, the universe, and everything. This was part of my original scripted opening, something I wrote back when I was first trying to find my way into the outline. Listening to it now, it seems foolish to say that these chapters have nothing deeper to say than the rest of the book, especially since we go on to discuss how our planned topics Highlight Steamheart's themes of communication, hope, loss, among a few others. More than that, just because Team Steam is interacting with itself rather than the larger world, it doesn't mean that those character moments are less weighty. Indeed, people friendly to each other communicating allows for the greatest possibility for them to learn and grow. That correction out of the way, I shall let the original recording continue to speak for itself. They are simply in a position where they are teaching each other about their worlds. And I mean that both in the personal sense and in the larger sense. As Jeremy puts it, even if Rama's cats and humans are different in major taxonomic ways, they have feelings and social structures and ways of thinking that are still similar. We mentioned previously that the entry of Miguel and Hrao changes the dynamic of the team. But more than anything else, we love to see the people we care about making friends with each other. But there are still deeper points of entry, so let's see what we can find. To begin with, we see something unexpected in Chapter 27. The idea that not only are Jeremy and Raven writing down the details of Rama, but that they are specifically writing out a narrative version of Miguel and Hrao's story. And because they mention including Haka as a third protagonist, we cannot help but come to the conclusion that they are manifesting the story of Tiger's Eye into their world. This makes for an unusual experience in regards to breaking the fourth wall. Normally, this happens when a protagonist becomes aware they are a character in a story, either literally addressing the audience or being unusually genre-savvy without breaking character. Here, though, it's suggesting a fictionalized account of actual events. And that wrinkles our brains, because you and I, as the audience, took Tiger's Eye at face value. Everything that happened in the story are things that we knew to be quote-unquote true. But now that Tiger's Eye exists in the world of New Century, we know that that version of the story cannot simply be a non-fictional story, because they could not truly know what was going on in Haka's head. It's one of those weird moments where Marvel Comics somehow exist inside the Marvel Universe, and we wonder how they can possibly explain that and still retain cohesion, what with suspension of disbelief and the like. I bring that up specifically because as I record this, we are on the verge of the new She-Hulk Attorney at Law show. And one of the plot points in the comic run that they are specifically basing this series off of is the fact that Marvel Comics were able to be brought into evidence during trials that She-Hulk herself presided over in order to make an argument to the judge and to the jury.
1: So, like, I won't go down the tangent of going into the specifics of that, because I have so many questions of <laughs> what is essentially like, look, this fictional account of my life, or fanfic, to give it a, like a different label, I am absolutely supplying as legal evidence in this court of law,
0: I mean, the, the, they do their best to explain it in continuity, um, mm. but it obviously it's playing a little bit fast and loose with the whole idiosyncrasy of literally being aware of an audience that exists outside the comic but also exists inside the comic. Specifically, at one point, She-Hulk getting in an argument with nerds about how the Infinity Gems work. That's a story for another time.
1: I would say it's one of the strangest instances of development in a court of law, but I am a Phoenix Wright fan, so I have (laughs) not a leg to stand on. Fair enough, fair enough. Roundabouting back to the subject at hand, my ultimate conclusions on how we reconcile the external text of Tiger's Eye with the internal account of the events that that book depicts is that we can take what we read or listened to in Tiger's Eye as a faithful direct account of how each of its three narrators experienced and thereby relay events. After all, the sense of time is very much emphasized on present sensory versions of these events and their feelings towards it. It's not really discussed or described in a, I'm putting this to the record. It's Mm. a flowing in the moment version of of things, a stream of consciousness. We've gone into the narration and how that creates a dreamlike version of it, because dreams are very difficult to narrate a past version of in the dream, this happened because you just quickly lose the thread of it Mm. they make far more sense in the moment as you are experiencing them which is another reason why i cement that parallel i'm unsure that jeremy and raven would necessarily adopt that same method of narration because for alex the external author's purposes it makes sense to adopt a different mode of experiencing time That's what Alex wants the effect to be. He wants it to be transportive. This is an alternate world with its own unique forms of processing and internalizing surroundings and events. While Raven and Jeremy certainly could strive for a similar goal of conveying the otherness of this world in every detail, including the narration. I would expect them to make certain adaptations for the sake of clearly communicating this to a wider audience of the reunified states that such a text would be constructed for. The existence of the cartographer's handbook, Raven's own articles, and Jeremy's own journal entries complicates the question, providing examples of internal texts within the fiction of this world that exemplifies, in turn, documentation made with the purposes of widespread distribution for general information, Raven's own manner and priorities for reporting and journalism, and lastly, Jeremy's enthusiasm for the minutiae of everything otherworldly. That cocktail of factors makes it difficult to accurately gauge what the in-fiction version of Tiger's Eye Would read like without seeing it directly followed up with some text that directly shows what the final product looks like.
0: But honestly, (laughs) once you unpack all of that and externalize Mm. your thoughts on the idea, first of all, correctly pointing out that this is not the first time that a piece of in world fiction has existed for the purposes of the in world audience, specifically the cartographer's handbook. And so therefore, they're developing an unnamed narrative up till this point, but a narrative Mm -hmm. of Hrau and Miguel's story. The fact that you point out Jeremy's fixation on detail would therefore contribute to the great amount of detail that is brought to us for that transport of effect in the actual Tiger's Eye novel. One could even argue that Jeremy and Raven writing the story of an alien world and its denizens could explain certain unexpected inclusions in the text of Tiger's Eye that Toby and I already deconstructed. Imagine Miguel telling them about a goat-like creature that Rao hunted for them, but much larger than a domestic goat with massive curved horns. One can see Jeremy going, oh, like an ibex, and then using that as the point of reference in the book. And I suspect that if anyone would be able to understand the now experience of the world the way Hrao and Miguel do, it would probably be Raven, given hmm. his own background.
1: They actually do work as the perfect uh, yes. people to relay such a story. Yeah.
0: If one were to think too much about this, like you and I do, oh yeah, this does make a certain amount of sense. One could even take it a step further, and point out that Jeremy and Raven are characters that Alex created, and therefore are facets of his personality, writing a story inside another of his stories. But now we're completely going up our own ass, so let's take it a step backwards. People know I love meta, but there can be too much meta. Did he finish the project he was working on? What project? The whole reason why he put the clock in the wall in the first place? You talked about it on Feed Dump. Oh, that explains why. I don't watch Feed Dump. It's too meta. Oh, I love Feed Dump. It's so meta. I film Feed Dump, and sometimes it's too meta. I don't know what
2: I expected.
1: I always think about the sort of weird, like, meta folding in and of itself, uh, Uroboros, whatever analogy you want to think of. The way I describe it, and I forget if I brought it up on the podcast before, is... What's the name of the actor who does uh, the Die Hard films?
0: Oh, uh, Bruce Willis.
1: Bruce Willis, thank you. I knew it was Bruce something. So the way I describe this, and if I've described it on the podcast before, then I apologise, but I call this the Bruce Willis in Friends effect. The long-running TV show of Friends, Mm. at one point, you see they are discussing a favourite film of theirs, which is... Die Hard, and how when we watch Die Hard in London, it's going to be fantastic. Big laugh. Now, a season or two later, I can't remember exactly how long after this, it's not really important, Rachel starts dating a character who is played by Bruce Willis, and I have always wondered, in such a conceit, what is the logic here? because you have a character who is played by the actor whose work is directly referenced in fiction. Now, they don't necessarily bring up Bruce Willis's names, but you can't really invoke Die Hard without, in turn, invoking everyone involved in its creation, unless we're supposing that this is some alternate universe version of it. So what do Joey and Chandler think when they see Rachel's new boyfriend? That this guy just has an uncanny resemblance to Bruce Willis or something along those lines? I don't know. And there's various other wrinkles that this can be like, such as in the MCU, which has an ever expanding cast and ever expanding films, which will all want to make their own references to pop cultural material. So when in Avengers Endgame, Robert Downey Jr. refers to the Big Lebowski at one point, Mm. you have to wonder, huh, you know, that guy that like was a work partner for many years before I got into this whole superhero gig, and then eventually (laughs) turned into the Ironmonger. Now I think about it, he kind of looks like him if you know, he had a bit more hair. And so It's just a tale that can go on and on and on. And what is the end result of this? Absolutely nothing of any goddamn consequence. This is just a factor of making stories and making films that there will be moments when you play with the meta a little bit, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and it produces amusing effects. But I like that in this instance, we can actually think about the goddamn meta of it and it still has a little bit of internal sense to it.
0: The thing that immediately comes to mind is Ocean's 12, where in-universe they make a reference to the fact that George Clooney's girlfriend bears a striking resemblance to a famous actress, and then as everything else is falling apart, they end up having to use that strong similarity in order to enact a con. And this directly ties with what you're saying, because the person who figures out that something kinky is going on is actually Bruce Willis, realizing that <laughs> realizing that this other character is not in fact Julia Roberts, because he's met Julia Roberts. Their families are friends.
1: Oh my God, we didn't plan that, I swear.
0: I- <laughs> no no we did not
1: getting back into the specifics of this that more importantly than all of this being some coy meta reference i.e. the regular dead horse for beating Game of Thrones and its song of ice and fire invocation in the final episode for really no effect in particular in that show in this instance what's important about what it's referencing here is what it represents by suggesting that the group now knows enough about Frau and Miguel's past, including, at the very least, empathetic suppositions of hackers' motivations, which are, you know, that's kind of feasible that these two would be able to make certain observations like that after that final encounter and the acknowledgement between all parties that they share on a profound level.
0: It just suddenly makes miguel's level of empathy like a superpower
1: yeah and you know some of it might be a flawed supposition some of it not Mm. i mean but the point is that it's not this impossibility it's Mm. not an impossible leap now fast forward some of the getting to know you and the basics matter while it would be an indulgent treat to hear the group's running commentary and moment-to-moment reactions to this book we're all invested in this stage in Steamheart, we really don't have the time to dawdle. By skimming past the stage of the familiarisation process, it allows more incisive conversations to be held. Like Annie's observation that Hrau's mother kind of disappears without much mention past a certain point in the story. That's a moment that provides expansion on Krau's story and her past, as well as an insight to the rest of the group when they reflect on their own circumstances. As well as a succinct moment of connection that quickly and firmly glues them all together. The existence of a hypothetical Tiger's eye text existing in New Century is there. Lester suggests that Crow and Miguel were able to develop impressive levels of empathy and guesswork, as you say, almost like a superpower. The quote that comes to mind is just this particular clip from Team Four Star I use a lot, which is just Vegeta saying to Frieza confusedly,
0: How did you know about the parts you weren't there for?
1: (laughs) (laughs) To which in the show, he does not respond, and they just quickly move on to the next bit where they're yelling at each other. (laughs) And it's more to indicate the level of familiarity that the rest of the cast is now working with at this point.
0: I do like that explanation, honestly, because as we'll get into later on on my list of topics here, I kind of noticed that myself on another level in terms of other things that I just managed to skip past in order to get to meaningful interactions. Because lest we forget,
1: In Steamheart, in order to facilitate the chapters that we've already had with just Frau and Miguel, we've already had a summary of Tiger's Mm. Eye. And that was for the audience's benefit. If we did another repeat of it, it actually would get to the point where we're kind of getting sort of sick of hearing about it because Mm. it's like, can we just get to the part where like new stuff is happening and generating? Even for the people who didn't read Tiger's Eye. They would know they would already be caught up because of that pre existing chapter.
0: I expect from a storytelling level on Alex's side of things that when he was putting all of this together, there was probably some back and forth and some trying to figure out exactly where the Hrau and Miguel chapters would happen. Uh, leading up to this final joining of all in team steam and perhaps also some consideration of where, where does Alex put the abridged version of tiger's eye to catch a potential audience up on reminding them, these are the things that happen in this book, which you may or may not have read. And even if you did read it, maybe you forgot some salient details along the way.
1: And I think his solution is the, Who knows what else we might find out there? Mm -hmm. Smash cut to that. And in terms of like fulfilling what the informed reader is there for, I think it works because even though we're going over previously known material, we've just had a chapter or two where a bunch of characters have met for the first time and have formed a plan and you know there's a sense of momentum. Like the book has already assured you, don't worry don't worry we've got a plan we can make something happen with this so mm. that's yeah. why it works well for me
0: well not just that but this is also the reason why that chapter was a part of part one because yeah. that was the section of the story where everyone was being introduced ergo right. it makes sense that even though we only check in briefly with Miguel and Harrow waiting for the rest of team steam to catch up with them that yeah. we put the introduction right there with everything else that's thematically consistent
1: it's the hardest part of this whole sort of performance that that steam heart is to balance they were already apparent even before the book begins why abigail and james are heading to washington to meet up with the people who are based there like at the end of secret rooms they say we need to get this there ASAP. Before the book even starts, the pieces are there to make that happen. Crow and Miguel, by the end of Tiger's Eye, are in this world, but that's kind of tricky to sort of like say, okay, so they're here in this world and in this country, but like, how do we actually get to the point where their paths cross? Because, you know, if you're dealing with multiple worlds, it might sound as if if you've got on the WhatsApp group and gone like, you know, hey, where are we meeting? On Centrum. It's like, that does not narrow it down. Do you know how <laughs> big it
0: is? <laughs> yeah, and how then do you introduce these characters to the rest of our cast without like, it seeming too contrived? Hmm. Even the
1: original Avengers struggled with this. Like, Thor hmm. just kind of, drops out of the sky like that's how he enters
0: the film like we don't know how he knew that loki was on this jet was he even aware of iron man and captain america like yeah all of a sudden he's having not but yeah he has
1: to know enough that he look we bring up this bloody film like every time we could do because it's the most relevant thing like if we didn't already have a penny laden jar on the table we would be making another running gag of it The point is, there are comparisons to be made. It is hard to balance multiple characters and thread them together, and I think that's why we have as many chapters as we do before everybody gets to have their dessert. They get to have their sort of purple velvet cake of, like, with... I don't know. I I didn't come to this meeting prepared with notes of what each member of the New Century cast would be if they were a dessert, so, you know check my <laughs> Tumblr blog on that or something, I don't know, uh, with like photoshopped pictures of things. And th- the bit has gone on. I'm done. I There are certain things that will run its course when my brain is like a plate of scrambled eggs with mash just kind of smushed together. I'm done with the bit. We are moving on.
0: And so therefore I redirect us to a second bit where I take Mm -hmm. your metaphor from a moment ago about needing a second jar and can just imagine like a jar with a bunch of technically fake hundred dollar bills with Tony Stark's face on them. And we put one in every single time we mention the Avengers in the context of Steamheart. Well, it's like Tony making bison dollars or something. (laughs) I mean, it's, a, it's as a joke, but I can totally imagine him doing that, considering how much of a, uh, of a um, showstopper he considers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was going to be nicer and not say narcissist, but I mean, yes, he is a bit of a narcissist. Anyway, honestly, at this rate, I should just have a rack of jars like Toby says. Here's one full of credits every time I refer to Mass Effect. This one has Platinum if Firefly comes up. We've got Latinum for DS9 and Centauri Ducats for Babylon 5. If we bring up Persona 5, it's Yen. Gold if it's Undertale. And if we bring up Aliens, fuck it, I don't know. 10 millimeter armor-piercing caseless rounds. At the end of the day, we're fucking nerds and so is Alex. So we're constantly going to be comparing New Century to other things we love because Alex Shore wrote them with some of these beloved properties in mind. There is a great deal in these chapters, but especially chapter 27, that focuses around sharing each other's worlds, as I earlier alluded to, and what they can learn from each other. There is obviously the dramatic difference of Hrow, her people, her ecosystem, and her culture, but there is also a great deal of reflection on a great many other things, to wit, cultural synchronistic patterns, such as spiritual beliefs, or the fact that Penrose reminds Hrow of Dr. Shara.
1: Sweet flaming lion Jesus. But yes, it is nice to see that the comparisons aren't kept to strictly Christian examples, and are instead approached from a more, you know, academically anthropological perspective, that examines the independent establishments of deities and mythological figures, which draws points of comparison between the different cultures of Rama slash Prowl's people, because you know, Rama's a big place after all. Mm-hmm. And the disparate cultures of centrum slash outworld. It is intriguing. but that's just interesting, dressed up in a trench coat and a fedora, isn't it? <laughs> Fine. I'll I'll play by your rules, Alex. There is a mysterious quality with unspoken implications to the connection slash parallels between James and Shearer. Between this observation from Frau, as well as the Lost Chapter epilogue on the podcast that notes further similarities between the two individuals that suggest that they are overlapping pinpricks on two different layered realities and Alex's own idle conversations outside of the books on certain Discord threads and forums that reinforces and confirms this connection between the two, it suggests that there might very well be other cosmic doppelgangers of other cast members, and it probes us to consider if we can identify any other parallels from the
0: expanded cast of New Century that we are already aware of. You and I could go on a much longer conversation about this based on our own experiences it with it. It kind of be its own episode, like a spoiler yeah. cast, honestly. Among other things, this feels like a topic that should be part of a Century Tales episode, which I would include you on, because originally that was like the idea of it was me and Maureen talking about things, but we can like have have a, a, a round robin about it. It would be a fun little I, exercise. I, I would love to be a
1: special guest on my own show. Um... (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Also, (laughs) now that you've brought up this metaphor, all I can imagine is like someone hanging out in a dark alley with the trench coat and the fedora, suddenly approaching two people out of the street. Let's just imagine it's you and me. And all of a sudden, they're going to be like, hello there, stranger. Would you like to see something interesting my teacher warned me about people like you
2: <laughs> oh,
1: no, i i love that to be honest when i was uh, putting that description together i was just thinking of like vincent adultman and it's like <laughs> like analytics wise this all seems like interesting
0: business <laughs> <laughs> that's a very different um
1: <laughs> conclusion feel to it obviously i like yes. both
0: but you're not wrong that uh, the two of that it, intriguing could be a synonym to interesting. And the only thing that I would associate them being a difference between the two in that intriguing would be uh, as, as a basis on the word intrigue, which mm. is a specific kind of concept that you adequately associated with the word mysterious when you decide mm. to change that in your notes. Mm. Because it's something that, you know, you and I and Maureen
1: could and probably will do a sort of full-length discussion of, like, all the possibilities of it, but it doesn't necessarily have something, some concrete answer at the rest of it. It's, like, if it's interesting, it sort of has some definitive conclusion at the end of it. Something where it's like, oh, that generates interest because there is this thing here. That is the point of interest. There is, like, a specific thing that raises your attention, whereas intrigue is this idea of some sort of unanswered question that maybe demands open-ended exploration.
0: I wasn't intending to get into an epistemological conversation on words, <laughs> but just to extrapolate off of what you were saying there for a moment, what one person finds of interest. It can be different from person to person, whereas what What could be considered intriguing could have broader appeal to it because there is the implication of a mystery and a lot of people are naturally gravitating towards mysteries. That's why mystery stories are so often a huge component of the media we partake of. I'm
1: really getting a giggle out of imagining Alex just sort of writhing in his chair right now because he can't tell. He can't decide if we are using interesting far too many times in a close proximity. And yet we've probably never justified the invocation of interesting quite so much as we have here because the subject of conversation is the word interesting. So, you know... (laughs) It's all very well justified because it is an interesting conversation.
0: (laughs) I think that your uh, current uh, heat-stricken situation probably only further contributes to the exciting nature of our uh, recording today.
1: (laughs) I'm afraid I'm not inclined to make a habit out of it, but I'm glad it has some positive benefits.
0: But once more, as we have completely gotten off topic... That doesn't sound like us. Yeah, exactly. Other things these chapters reflect on. Sharing points of view that allow others to have a better understanding of their lived experience. Such as James explaining modern medicine in a context that allows both Rao and Miguel to understand why it is that they got sick. When they visited each other's worlds. I really like this because
1: it's not a conversation that comes across as quite condescending or patronizing to Hral, because it's just really a way of James having to find an inventive way of abstracting this biological framework into a way that, you know, can be communicated and understood by someone outside of you know, your well-worn and very familiar frame of reference. It's hard to do that, because the best way to show how little a grasp you have on the reality around you is when you'll use a word for granted for so many days of your life, and then someone will ask you, what does that mean? And you are struggling to actually articulate what it means. It's a... I think a worthwhile and revealing conversation to be able to see that James is having to kind of consider his work and the things that he is knowledgeable of from a different point of view.
0: Honestly, it's not clear to me if if these are James's metaphors or if this is Miguel providing translation duties. James possibly used words like germ theory, or other stuff like that. And Miguel is like, could you please break it down a little further for me because you're using words that I don't understand. The point is is that Miguel is able to explain it to Hrao using words and concepts that she understands.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: once more, he is the translation focus between not simply the human world and the cat world, but also just... We already know that James is an expert. He is a specialist. He knows about things that even other humans don't understand.
1: Well, you know, in our fields, Sarah's in my own, something that you'll hear over and over again that like the real sign of expertise on something is that it, you can explain it in simple and easily understood terms. Because. Mm. It's all very well and good using very eloquent and hyper specific language in order to balance and deal with complicated ideas and subject matter. But if you can't actually relay it in a way that other people will be able to interpret, then all that hyper specific knowledge isn't really that much good to anyone. So it's good when someone knows something well enough that they can actually extrapolate it and break it down into its fundamentals and i do think that james does a certain amount of that i don't think it's all down to miguel Mm. because i think we actually hear i could be remembering this wrong so uh editor greg can help me out on this but i'm pretty sure that we hear james speak the words like it is voiced by him Mm. and uses certain terms like the sort of Little Warriors, or however it comes across.
0: Toby is both correct and incorrect in this supposition. It is Miguel that first uses the metaphor of tiny warriors fighting off infection, a metaphor that James voices later, after Hrau asks about the possible effect of the Wendigo infection on her. So it's hard to say for sure who first came up with the metaphor, but to be honest, I suppose it doesn't matter. It's not important to assign credit, though we will later get into a conversation about the way these chapters deal with complex conversations between characters who do not all have a puissance with one single language.
1: And also, while the other example I'm thinking of of Miguel providing translating duties is us hearing a recording, which is a bit more a sort of undisputed, this is what was said, this is directly mm. what you know the conversation was we hear miguel finding it very difficult to act as a translator when raven is asking a lot of questions rapid fire and he's just mm. like you know f- f- slow the fuck down man i like a lot of these things uh, there's not even a concept or a word for it like and raven just going like sure i'll wait
0: and it's like yes uh, <laughs> mia yeah. um well so Part of when I was doing some further research for this exact part of the story, one of the things I was curious about is at what state was the understanding of bacteria and medicine at this point in our human history that James would be drawing off of? Because a full understanding of all of these things, which are much more easily accessible to people like you and I, even before the age of the internet, we understood about germs. Like that was something that our parents taught us about. This is why we wash our hands, or why we're supposed to wash our hands, but a lot of people don't, but I'm, Wash Wash your hands. hands.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wash your friggin' hands.
0: My point is, is that uh, I, I actually went to Wikipedia and looked into this and found out that the events of Broad Street, where the epidemiologist John Snow was looking into the cholera outbreak in London and trying to figure out what the deal was behind that, that all happened at a point in human history, in our history, that is prior to the Wendigo outbreak of Centrum in this particular case. And in Mm -hmm. point of fact, it even brings to mind that conversation all the way back in Let Them Go where Rebecca is talking with Dawson about how wonderful our British doctors are and how they could potentially find a solution to dealing with this sickness which they don't even understand is the Wendigo Plague yet. So it feels very likely that a great deal of that relevant information that we find so ubiquitous today could have been information that Dr. Potts had that he would have then communicated on to James, therefore allowing this conversation to take place for the purposes of explaining these past events to the audience.
2: Mm.
0: And as you can tell, I thought way too much about this as I was digging deep, as I always do. There is no such thing as thinking too much about some things.
2: Yeah,
1: mm, yeah, I... Yeah, I, then, I then, I may retract that immediately. <laughs> yeah, fair like, enough. You you can just look at our back catalogue for a myriad pieces of evidence to the contrary on that. But we do so proudly, nevertheless.
0: Yeah, I can only hope that the fact that we've thought way too much about New Century is at least entertaining to someone. O- honestly considering that we had one of our very first listener contributions it does feel like the fact that we went in on deep on some of these things has allowed other people to think deeply about it as well and ask questions that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise
1: yeah this is why it's good to have uh, listener contributions Mm because we will not get everything (laughs) it turns out There are ancient new century riddles as yet to be solved until someone other than ourselves gets in there. So this is why we always say we're not the final word on it. Please write in. Please say you guys missed this thing because odds are you're probably right. Mm.
0: Other topics of interest, how Harry and Miguel in particular are able to talk about difference of lived experience And yet Miguel being able to understand and relate to what Harry went through when she was younger, even though parts of it are so outside both of his quote unquote lives. The one spent as Francisco's son and the one spent as Krauss' son, so to speak.
1: See, that makes sense because Miguel says something along the lines that the people who dismiss Harry don't listen or pay attention to her. Mm. And if any character is likely to be equipped to establish an empathetic understanding of someone with an alternative way of engaging with the world, The kid who managed to communicate and form an intimate, loving bond with a tiger from another world, they're probably going to be a prime candidate. Like, Mm -hmm. if he was able to distinguish Growls and everything else that Growls produces, he's absolutely going to be able to sort of see Harry and just think, okay, she needs a little bit more time. Learning any language requires patience Mm. I mean learning any skill really requires Mm -hmm. patience because you need to essentially suck at it for a bit Mm. before you get okay before you actually work a decent comprehension of something I've been playing a bit of post-game Hades recently Mm. and they have a really good little side quest thing you can do where you chat with Orpheus and if you get a harp for your room you can actually go in and play it a little bit and when you first get it it like it's awful and you even have a conversation with it but Orpheus basically says you know keep on like practicing it so if you strum it a few times before each escape attempt eventually you actually start to get a little bit better and then you have to do it even more times and then you'll get OK, some decent sounds. And then finally, you actually are able to play some music from it. And at that point, it sounds like, oh, cool. And I love that idea of showing in media that patience is kind of the most necessary tool to learn and to improve and, yes, to communicate.
0: Absolutely. That's a really good Example that you brought up with regards to Hades. I I definitely got that uh, Harpside quest myself in at least one of my playthroughs I did get to a point where I was able to use it to play I believe the main Hades theme On completion of the quest you get to play a couple of riffs from the various themes in the game of which there were many I really should get this soundtrack because fuck that game had good music Finally, we have discussion of similarity of individual experience, which you alluded to earlier Mm. in some of your notes, how at the end of chapter 27, no one in the group might have lost a child, but Annie points out that everyone in the group has lost family, and that's an experience that everyone can share regardless of race, gender, sexuality, or even species
1: at this particular point we're in a motorized transportation and we have a group of badasses who have all established a found family among each other is this the fast and the furious
0: (laughs) unfortunately i can neither confirm nor deny since the fast and the furious is a series of movies that i have not watched up till this point but if we're just talking about from a purely pun level, then yes, I would agree.
1: The School of Movies shows will give you a decent sense of which ones to prioritize if you ever get into it. Because oh,
0: yeah, there's I have some, there's some
1: solid stuff. Anyway. I'm about to do the standard thing, we've done it once already but I'm going to do a superhero ensemble comparison to for right here because I'm going to cite two pieces of media that strike a similar note to what we're talking about here. First, Justice League, the DCAU version of course, uh, has a moment where one of the team members notes that each of its founding members are orphans in a number of senses both literal and more circumstantial, but nevertheless essential, which I found personally vindicating as I had made that exact observation in my notes just a few storylines earlier to this being brought up. It's an observation that in both Justice League and Steamheart points to the resolved response to this being, in addition to a somber acknowledgement, something that forges a strong, found family-type bond, and a determination to make a new definition of home out of the place that you find yourself in. It speaks to the essential drive to make a better world out of the one that you've been handed with, so that you can establish a sense of security. If not for yourself, then certainly for others who our heroes decide deserve that opportunity. Secondly, the first Guardians of the Galaxy film and Quill's assessment that this band of erratic aliens and personalities are united in being folks who've lost stuff. We bang the drum that these are books about grief being a universal experience that we can use to unify ourselves to a common purpose and to feel less alone in that. But this is a moment that puts that philosophy into concrete words. Succinctly exemplifying how this group of people can all experience something profound that connects them through this acknowledgement of a pain and its correlating emotions that they all feel at once. They're all individual traumas and deep wounds, but they can be carried together.
0: It's important to acknowledge that as, as you say, an overriding theme, although this is just sort of the beginning of that. Krau and Miguel have only just been added to the team, and while these initial points of connection are important, we haven't necessarily gotten to that point yet of the entire team basically doing the, okay, I'm standing up. We're all standing up
2: like a (laughs) bunch
0: of
1: jackasses. (laughs) This is the between heists part of Persona 5 uh,
0: put a yen in the jar.
1: Where you're developing your sort of confident levels in each of the people. And it's you just sort of have Abigail and everyone talking with the new characters, and you just have the I am thou. Thou art
0: I. <laughs> oh my god, you're absolutely right. I'm suddenly just picturing like we're fading to black right when Frau is shaking everybody's hands and then all of a sudden that text comes across the yeah. screen <laughs> I am
2: thou thou art i thou hast acquired a new vow it shall become the wings of rebellion that breaketh thy chains of captivity with the birth of the strength persona i have obtained the winds of blessing that shall lead to freedom and new power
0: That's another game with good music. Although I'm just remembering that at one point we were doing a vote on the Discord on what the tarot major arcana of New Century was, and then we got sidetracked. We should get back to that at some point. Although, I'll admit, we're kind of taken up with the current run of Panther Soul chapters. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, it it totally works, because this is downtime and it is, I'll put it in terms that Alex is more likely to understand. This is the Normandy conversations with your crewmates like Mm. segment. Have you got a minute? Can it wait for a bit? I'm in the
2: middle of some calibrations.
1: It's all essential because it is what gives the stuff meaning and weight when developments start to happen because you need to know that these aren't just a group of cool people all sort of going on the road together, they are actually getting to know each other a bit better. An example of something like that, which I haven't played myself, so to our dozens of fans that have played Octopath Traveler before, I am sorry if this is a sweeping generalization, but the Square Enix game Octopath Traveler builds itself on the idea that you play through a set of like eight characters and their initial opening reason for why they are each going on a journey and that journey brings them together. But from what I've heard, the game kind of keeps it very sort of isolated to each character's experience. So it never feels as if they're really interacting or even that bothered with the people that they are kind of, brought into orbit with it feels much more like their ships passing in the night which maybe that gets better as the game goes on but that is something that people tend to develop these feelings of it's part of our makeup it's been part of our stories for as long as we've really been telling stories the Canterbury Tales are these sort of Chaucerian stories that are brought together by the framing narrative of a bunch of people of different walks of life and occupations who are just all heading to the same place. And they decide, Hmm, you know what, like we're spending this time together. We may as well all tell a story. And you know what, whoever tells the best story gets essentially a free drink at the end of the road. Like, I don't think that's even me being glib. I think that is the actual in story justification for all of this. And we do this because we understand that journeys with a group of strangers are compelling because they force you to recognize that something is drawing these disparate people together to a single destination.
0: It was here that Toby recommended I play a clip from the 2017 version of Murder on the Orient Express, but unfortunately I could not find the scene on YouTube, so instead I read off the relevant quote. You know, there's something about a tangle of strangers, pressed together for days on end, with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another and then never see each other again. Of course, that quote is not exactly indicative of Steamheart, but I leave the reference in because of the great comedy moment afterwards. It was actually Book that coined yeah. that particular argument about there being something compelling about a mm-hmm. bunch of strangers on the train never realizing what he was potentially alluding to on this being a very interesting train ride. <laughs> okay. Now we're just like being shitty, aren't we? Like... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, but that's, yeah. um, it's all good fun. We're just, you know, playfully ribbing him. Does this, does this bug you? Does this bug you? So moving back to the topic at hand, these chapters aren't just about developing rapport and finding new interpersonal dynamics. Just like earlier parts of Steamheart, there's catching the other protagonists up on the story the audience is already aware of without going over every little bit. This is what you were talking about when we brought up the story of Tiger's Eye. And because having everyone on the same page is important, there are ways Barriers to understanding are glossed over in order to get to the important stuff. In your case, you were talking about how if they're off camera asking Miguel and Frau for their life story and ending up putting it into a narrative format, then that's a way to sort of catch everybody up. Although they also allude to this sort of montage of like people going back and listening to the story as it's being told to... Raven and Jeremy who are busy writing everything down, but that it eventually gets to this point where everyone's aware of all of those events. What I'm bringing up now, however, is a slightly different concept, one that you also alluded to in an earlier part of our discussion here. At the beginning of chapter 28, Raven is using words that encapsulate complex ideas like continent, equivalent, and genocide. Alex even lampshades that it's difficult to have conversations like these through Miguel. We don't have signs for these words. Another consideration, English is also not Miguel's first language. The concept that I'm trying to communicate here is that any of those potential barriers are basically pushed to one side because it keeps the action moving to just have our protagonists solve communication issues. Unlike in Tiger's Eye, where how they solve the problem is important, here, we're more interested in the interaction. And the interaction can't happen unless they understand each other. Even if it leads to an amusing moment where Hrau, who a couple of weeks ago could only speak basic English words, is now able to say things for the purposes of the VoxTube recording, like prevent disaster. You speak very good English, well done. Of course, that could also have been Krause speaking her native tongue and Miguel translating. We don't think of it that way, again, because it's the VoxTube and not simply a journal entry displaying what is said, so to speak. But regardless of how it actually occurs, those extra steps are still erased. A lot of the time when Hrao speaks in the story, she appears to be speaking in English, but this is holding a narrative function. It's so that people in the story can communicate without a whole lot of real-world issues that would prevent it.
1: By indulging in the convenience of their literal whole-life stories being told between directly depicted scenes, as well as referring to the minutiae of navigating language barriers only when it serves a comedic or thematic point, it enables us to cut to the heart of what the varying characters' first responses to this tale might be, indicating what is it they prioritise. Here we see that Raven has picked up on this world's current state being at a point in its history when the comparable erasure of a native people at the colonial ambitions of an expanding empire is imminent. You can see the possibility of preventing this is a draw for Raven, but what's notable is that you'll notice that Raven isn't so feverishly getting ahead of himself in the same way that you would expect Jeremy might get caught up in hypothetical possibilities. Raven understands the full weight of what Hrow's people and the disparate cats of Rama are facing, and he wants to know the mind of someone facing an existence that has been cemented for him, but still remains undecided for
0: her. Here's one of those moments where once more, similarity of lived experience plays into them developing a greater rapport with each other. Although also, as you say, there's a thematic and dramatic and narrative weight to Raven asking this question of Frau. Potentially, her world is at a tipping point where something like preventing disaster is possible. We can't talk over much about what could be done to prevent disaster at this point, because that's a whole nother book. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of
1: elephant in the room, isn't it? We don't know what the state of things are back in Rama, because we exited at a point where things might get particularly pivotal, mm. but we nevertheless can see the weight in Raven pulling Frau aside, and kind of asking her to consider what you're facing here is something that you're going to fight very hard to prevent. Raven understands this. Mm. But I think that he is asking her this because he is living evidence that this is something that can happen. There will be an existence of a sort afterwards, and it will be a very heavy one because Mm. you carry... The knowledge of all that was lost and is difficult to recover but she's sort of wondering what her response is to that and
2: mm-hmm.
1: in a way you feel like she's registering that weight but i think she is nevertheless kind of resolved that this is something that no matter what the likelihood or the possibilities are i have to try we have to try There's nothing else we can do other than say, like, Mm. this is something we will fight Tooth and Claw for.
0: Raven might even need to hear something like that from Hrow, considering what he's carrying around. This belief that he is witnessing the fall of humanity, and may even believe they deserve it. We'll lose. And we'll do that together too. Like, it feels as a part of Tiger's Eye that Hrow and all of the other gathered cats, such as the panther chieftain, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, that would be Chief Shala, understand the implication of what it is they're facing. That they went to the other continent, got a taste of what this invasive empire and its people are going to be like and are returning in the hopes of preparing their various peoples to repulse the invaders, so to speak. But in addition to that, Crow bringing back knowledge from a world where things went along a similar tangent feels like it's useful information. There are a lot of stories involving Native Americans in particular, where we see that the native american populations or individuals of leadership understand that the white man can't be trusted and yet they are still not necessarily prepared for just how much he cannot be trusted just how inexorable their growing dominion of this continent is going to end up being
2: how many treaties have we signed with the muncie indians six how many have we revoked six what were Muncie's doing in 1778? Fighting in George Washington's army. And why aren't you in New York anymore? Because you marched us to Wisconsin. And whose land was it in the first
0: place? Ours. Whether by numbers or superior technology, or just the fact that they live in concert with nature, and colonialism is about bending nature to your will. Mm. It's like you know, we're
1: not naive, we're wary, it's just you guys are extra shitty.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. By the same token, having the knowledge of this is the way it turned out in spite of the good intentions of any of the Aboriginal peoples or even any of the colonial peoples, this ended up happening anyway, and Mm. therefore it's good for Proud to bring that knowledge to her people. it's going to change what kind of decisions you make potentially along the way. Greg, these are
1: really good conversations in this story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's how it usually ends up happening is that, yes, we are talking about New Century and therefore we are talking about all the components of New Century. But as I alluded in private conversation with you not that long ago, New Century is really just a framework for discussing a lot of other ideas that are of interest to us.
1: I will slap you through the screen, (laughs) even though I am just
0: as much to blame. (laughs) And that's another episode in the bag. Toby and I have recorded enough material for about two, maybe three more episodes, which is good because the next few weeks are going to be chaotic. In less than a week, Maureen will have packed up all her stuff and moved here temporarily to my father's house. In a few weeks, I'll be in the middle of transitioning at my office as the mailroom operations move from one parent company to another and equipment and personnel are put in place. In a month, Maureen and I will be moving into our own apartment. I will work on the podcast when I can, but the gaps between episodes may increase. Rest assured that we'll keep working behind the scenes, both to keep progress on Steamheart, and also to start recording Beyond the Wind Door episodes on non-New Century Media. Until next time, this is Darren Korb and Ashley Barrett of Supergiant Games, singing In the blood.